0: The book I have right now is like a short story collection, and that was, you know, several years worth of stories. I usually have a lot of narratives on the go. Yeah, I, I do tend to work at like a pretty steady pace, and um, I, I am constantly juggling a few projects at once. And yeah, I also don't want to like overplay what there's a lot going on. Like having a book lost in the shuffle was certainly not the the worst thing in the world, and not even the worst thing that happened to me at that <laughs> time. So yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I am kind of like used to the whole publishing schedule, and I try to I try to kind of stick to a, a pretty rigorous schedule myself, just for my own. Uh, that's, I, I just work best when I when I keep myself at a certain pace.
1: Are you full time cartooning at this point?
0: Yeah, I, I juggle between like personal projects, which are comics, and then um, commercial illustration, which is uh, you know a grab bag of different types of uh, gigs.
1: At what point in the process were you able to actually do the art thing full time?
0: I started working art full time once I, I I had a job in animation for a while, so I got hired as a prop designer on Adventure Time um, back when that was on the air. I was there for about, I guess, I can't remember how many seasons, but I was there for a little while um, up until the show ended. That was the the first time I'd worked full-time. I was able to like quit dishwashing once I got that job. And then after, after the show ended, I started gradually picking up more freelance work.
1: It's been amazing to see over the past, I would say, probably 10 to 12 years, a huge number of the the indie alternative cartoonists that I know are basically make a, a living off of animation. I mean, it seems to be, it seems to be a complete game changer because obviously I, you know, a, a small percentage, if any cartoonists are able to make a, a living just completely off of comics these days.
0: Yeah. Like I, I don't, I don't really know that many people who can just do comics. It usually ends up being, which I think, is common with like a lot of artists is like a grab bag of things. But animation, for me at least, was like really huge in representing just like a, a even just having a, a steady paycheck because I'm, I'm more used to the rhythms of freelancing. But obviously, freelancing like changes month to month, week to week, sometimes. Um, animation, just like knowing kind of reliably like what your next month will look like or what. Hopefully, six months would look like was like a pretty big deal, and and one that I think is like for me, I I I really um, found valuable.
1: What do you mean when you say kind of reliable? I mean, how how strict of a structure is it when you're working on a you know network cartoon show?
0: Oh, it was really strict. I only meant kind of reliable in that like your show could get canceled. So <laughs> I, uh...
1: In the way that like any job could potentially you know go away at any moment. I I don't think that there was too much of a chance of Adventure Time being canceled, at least in those days. Yeah, well, I
0: mean, I I can't get into it too much, I don't think, but, like, it was a little bit of a surprise when it ended when it did. I think we all anticipated a a few more seasons than um, we did, and, and like, I'm lucky that I had that thing for as many years as I did, because, obviously, shows don't have that long a run regularly, too, so... But yeah, like, obviously, I'm so out of... Like, I've never even, like, lived in LA, and I've never worked in the studio. So I also, like, I only have this one very specific job experience. And then a a lot of, like, the other ups and downs of animation, I I haven't really experienced.
1: That must have been a conversation that you had. I mean, assume that when you're applying for a job, like a a, a Cartoon Network show, that they probably want you to move to Los Angeles. Was that just not something that interests you?
0: Part of it was that they... When they were staffing, um, like I already came on a little late. I came on season three and um, they were already interested in working with people from like different experiences and like who didn't just cut their teeth in animation like they had they wanted you know someone with illustration from comics and then they could teach the animation stuff later because I had no formal training. and I, I was like a lot of other staffers who were kind of the same. Our, our background wasn't animation. and I think because of that they were like willing to be kind of flexible. And at that point, they had already had one or two storyboard artists and designers working remotely. So um, I think like once once they had found it worked for a few people, they could they realized like oh I can just do this for large portions of our staff. And um, I didn't have to the the responsibilities I had on, on the job. It wasn't actually important that I be there in person for like all the face to face meetings. Like I mostly just had to talk to a few people a lot rather than the whole team a lot. Um, so yeah, it was never like a big thing. And I never wanted to move to LA, uh, not, both, both because I like Toronto, but I also don't know how to drive. And I feel like that would be very difficult to get around LA that way.
1: Is a job like that when you're working with what is essentially someone else's vision, or at least a lot of other people's visions, and working again
0: with a studio
1: on a, on what is ostensibly a, a children's TV show? Is it still creatively fulfilling?
0: Uh, it was like there were weeks when it was a slog, and it was you know you're just drawing boring things. <laughs> like I was doing like props and effects. So there definitely some weeks where it's just like I'm drawing like a car from five different angles, and it's you know just really difficult and tedious. But they they did let me like run wild uh, a few times, and I think that was what made it like a pretty unique job to work on. Was that they tried to uh, task artists with things that they think they could bring their own voice to um rather than just pick up people they know could conform to a house style they actually like let me do concept art or or would assign me things outside of my normal set of responsibilities if they did think that if they did want me to bring my my own voice to it Um, and they did that throughout like uh, i think most of the artists who worked on the show even if they were just in design or just in storyboards would end up sometimes swapping to both when it when it became yeah just when it came up you know like i I did a lot of concept art even though that wasn't my normal mode and yeah i worked in storyboards and title cards and lots of like odd jobs
1: how style is i mean it's an interesting idea uh, with a show like that i assume that even you know in spite of the fact that again they're drawing from what sounds like a diverse group of artists and people like you who work in indie comics who obviously like have perhaps different sensibilities but there is sort of still kind of an overarching house style, right? I mean, there is like an Adventure Time style and you do ultimately need to adhere to that to some degree.
0: Oh yeah, totally. And that was tough to get used to. I think what helped too is like Adventure Time more than some other shows. It I think because of its setting, like it being this sort of fantasy setting, it's like a little flexible. And that's both the, you know, part of the vision of the creators, but then being able to like, make stuff up as you go, or, or the show being able to make things up as it goes, it, it makes it just easier to fold in different aesthetics versus something like, um like, I, I really like the look of Bob's Burgers, but that's um, less flexible, like a an, an world, you know, you can't just like, inject new influences in without it standing out or without there being a, a reason for it.
1: Although tedious, it sounds like doing things like drawing cars would come relatively naturally to you because I mean, your stuff does often feature a lot of technical aspects. I mean, is, that, was that something you were easy to adapt to?
0: No, that was really tough for me. Uh, part of it was uh, like, I, I like getting into like weird detail stuff, but um, I have no, I'm not good at technical drawing. Like that, that had to be really like forced and something I learned on the job because um I think part of it is also like I never, because I didn't, I didn't go to art school, I never had like the, was never forced to do the very rigorous, like look at a car and figure out how to draw a car or like do a very detailed architectural drawing. Like I think some artists do get that like very specific technical training and precise drawing skill. Because I was always just making like my own comics and zines. If there was something that I didn't feel like drawing or didn't want to learn how to draw, I would just decide to cut it out of my comic you know like I, I never wanted to like learn how to draw a bike so I just for a while had comics that didn't have bicycles in them until I felt like I wanted to learn how to draw it so really being forced to like being assigned like hey you have to draw a car engine look at a car engine and draw it that was like my first time I actually got that type of like assignment so um, it, was a, it was a steep learning curve for me and I, I people I, I worked under changed throughout the years but like I really credit them for helping me learn very basic technical drawing skills. Do you feel like
1: that, that that's had a marked impact on your comics work?
0: Yeah, it's made me um, more confident in a cartoonist. And uh, but I also found that like working in animation I would because uh, the, the nature of that show in particular like it's tethered to space and time in a very specific way. You can't, you know, like you have to be very precise about your drawings and and they have to exist in a three-dimensional world and have depth to them um it kind of almost made me push my comics in the opposite direction and it made me feel more confident to make my comics more abstract and more loose um and push bodies and and forms in ways that make sense in comics that you can't do in animation and and uh kind of break rules of space and time that you can't really pull off in a show like adventure time so it almost made me push my comics like in the opposite direction which i thought was funny to see when I look back at it I can see like as I was getting better at technical drawing my comics were featuring less and less technical drawing.
1: I tend to think of your work as being pretty pretty loose and not particularly tied to anything linear.
0: That seems like it's always
1: been to at least to some degree a characteristic of your comics but you just feel like that's intensified as you've done this animation work.
0: Yeah and I do think some of it too comes with um, confidence that all cartoonists kind of have as they keep going. Um, where when I look at like really early work of mine like uh early issues of of a series i did called lose it's very like i can see how i was trying to go for more technical flourishes and like show off a little bit and it's because i felt like i had something to prove i wasn't super confident i thought i could hide some kind of structural flaws in my drawing with like wild details and all that sort of thing but once you keep going you can like feel more confident Letting a drawing be simple and minimal, um, you become more elegant a cartoonist. And I think that arc is very clear and like that's usually the arc of most cartoonists. It's like rarely that they get more and more precise. Like there are examples of that, but it's usually like they they get more loose and like anyone from like Jack Kirby to Jaime Hernandez or like Chester Brown. I think there's like a big element of that in Linda Berry's work. Like I think it it's you see that a lot of like just people's comfort level, getting relaxed throughout their careers. And I think that's been the case for me.
1: Kirby's an interesting case because I think Kirby in this specific instance probably parallels your work more than those other examples because he, he got looser as he had fewer, as he, he didn't have to deal with the system as much anymore. Right. I mean, he was working within the strict structures of these comics companies and it's, it's once he left Marvel he was at DC, but once he left Marvel, he started he started doing the really weird stuff, and it was almost like he had this like, he, like he was backed up when he did it. You know, I, I guess the closest analogy I, I could think of in the non comic side is when the Beatles broke up, George Harrison releases this like four record album because he's just he's got all of this stuff that he wasn't able to do within that system.
0: Oh yeah, and the the Kirby stuff when he's just like really going wild, like the, the two thousand one series is like my favorite Kirby work and like also knowing that like I think that was when he started doing the pages where he he wasn't really laying them out that much beforehand he was just like starting on like the upper left hand corner of the page and like finishing it that way, which is completely maniacal to imagine anyone anyone drawing a page that way it's but yeah that's like so inspiring to me of just of just watching someone putting so much of themselves on the page uh and these are like really idiosyncratic ways
1: how much prep work goes into one of your pages
0: uh at this point not uh, i have like a uh, a very loose skeleton but uh not much besides that i don't do very much like kind of Penciling or underdrawing or, or whatever. I, I, I work so dig. I work mostly digitally right now, so whatever the equivalent of penciling would be, I guess. Um, I do very little of that now, uh, and that's another thing. When I started, I had very like intricate, worked-over preliminaries, and um, now I don't feel like I, I need that, and I can just kind of work things out as I go.
1: When did you move to digital?
0: Uh, midway between. It, like uh, at some point when working on like lose number three, so it's been a while and th- th- there are occasions where like I'll have roughs that I will scan, but it's it's pretty rare uh, i I do most of it on the computer now.
1: Was that a difficult transition?
0: It wasn't only because the i the line I was going for beforehand like my my pen line was already uh pretty thin and dead like I don't like having. A lot of, um, I like having kind of like a deadline and I, I don't want much variation of like width in my line. And uh, that's, that's very easy to replicate a, a computer. It's almost easier for me to get that effect on the computer. It is easier for me to get that effect with like my Wacom tablet than it is when I hold a pen and um, it would have been different than, uh, yeah, if I was trying to like replicate this like very expressive brush stroke or something, um, obviously artists are able to do that, but like I, I didn't have to figure that out. So it, it was a pretty seamless transition for me.
1: It's interesting that you're able to go full digital when it comes to actually making the work, but it, you seem to be somebody who's still very much invested in, I mean, obviously in print, right? You've got all these books coming out, you're working with publishers. What's your sense of the reason for that? I don't know if disconnect is the right word, but what, what's your sense for why your approaches are so different between the the creation and the presentation?
0: Uh, I think it's just, that's how I. I still prefer to read. I can't read on a screen that well. Like I do sometimes. Like, but for like extended narratives, I actually like have a hard time focusing that long. I think just the the usual screen thing of there being too much pieces of information competing for my attention. And uh, I also just like the way books look and the way books are designed. I've gotten so used to like designing pages that are supposed to like look a certain way when you hold it in your hand and show up a certain way, when you like turn a page, it's supposed to grab your eye at a particular panel. And that's just like how I'm used to laying things out. I do put a lot of work online. And like, I, I do think of that as like a, an easy way to get stuff out there, knowing that is some people's preference. Um, but my personal preference is always for print. So I'd have a hard time giving that up, even though I am doing like web comics and, and posting things on, on different like platforms online.
1: Would you say generally that you're kind of wary about new technology? Because obviously that's how it plays out in a lot of your work, right? A lot of sort of the dystopian, especially your last book, a lot of the dy- dystopian ideals are based around technology gone wrong.
0: I feel like it's not that I am um, anti-technology and like, I don't feel like I'm a, I'm like a Luddite or anything, but uh, I, I was interested, you know, for for a book like Familiar Face and some of the shorts in, in the new book, I was... I'm interested in just like, we take a lot of aspects of technology for granted, and we tend to think a lot of developments in tech as being neutral and that they can be used for like good purposes or evil purposes. And I think most people would agree, like like we're using it more for evil purposes. And that's like so much of media. I'm trying to write about how nothing is neutral and the way tech has developed has been like in very specific ways. It's usually developed that way because of capitalism and uh, something like uh Surveillance or data collection or whatever, like there's not a good or bad data collection is like not neutral and like same with elements of like social media or whatever. And there are ideologies embedded within all of these technologies. Um, And I was influenced a lot by like different writers who write about this, Uh, Sherry Turkle, uh, Adam Greenfield. And I I feel like people get hung up on the idea of like tech being like... Like trying to find the good applications for it. But we take it for granted that tech has like developed a certain way naturally when it hasn't. It's developed this way because particular interests and ideologies have guided its development. A daily strip I do called Birds of Maine. A lot of that is about utopian bird technology. And I was trying to like write an alternate history of tech that has developed more equitably and like an internet that has developed to be as liberatory as early internet proponents sort of said it would be.
1: My main job is at TechCrunch. So I write about it every day. Yeah, I write about robotics, which are obviously both sides of, of the coin. My sense of it is that in a vacuum, tech is agnostic, but I think what you're getting at here is that you can't divorce it from the the powers that created it and the kind of immediate co opting of things. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because it's one of the things that everybody is talking about right now are NFTs. And I saw that you, you tweeted something about it, and I think it was right on the money. My, my, sen- my sense of it is that I, I know a lot of people are getting excited about it, and I think that, that probably some artists will get lucky and will make a killing off of it. And that's great, but nothing stays that way for long, right? Nothing benefits the non-powerful people for very long.
0: Yeah, the NFT thing is like, I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I've been very vocally kind of against, <laughs> and, 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 but I think even if you put aside all the environmental damage it's doing, which is a huge thing to put aside, like they are so cartoonishly wasteful that it's like a the very da- hard the thing data to mining
1: that require that's required to do any sort of like blockchain or cryptocurrency.
0: But even putting aside that, I don't really see why people who are correctly critical of the fact that the fine art market is so, you know, unstable and unsustainable and only benefits usually like a small group of already successful artists and is controlled by a group of speculators who are super rich and just looking for places to park their cash. I don't see why someone who is a proponent of NFT or They could look at that market and criticize it and then just want to replace it with a new version of that with like a slightly different group of rich speculators. It seems like such a like I kind of get why I see the appeal of like artists seeing a speculation bubble and just wanting to cash in quick. But the idea that this is like supposed to be some liberating or revolutionary intervention to just it's just creating a, a new Crappy art market. Like, why would we want to behold it be beholden to another version of this?
1: Honestly, I think a lot of it's from from the artist's perspective, I think it's desperation because we were talking about this earlier, that it's just and I talked to really successful cartoonists. I had Dan Klaus on the show, and like he's still selling his originals. Like that is like that's how he's making his money, right? He is mm-hmm. probably the best known alternative cartoonist in the world, and he's He's selling his originals. It's just not feasible. I mean, especially you know you're living in you're living in Toronto. I'm in New York. Anybody who's in a major metropolitan city, there's just no way to survive making your art. So I think anything, anytime something like this comes along, there's a brief moment of hope that like maybe there will be a way for people to actually make money on art.
0: Yeah, and I, I get the I you know again I I get the thing of like you see a a bubble or a gold rush. I see the appeal. I understand it. But once I just think it's like, yeah, even like the, the, I think the environmental damage is like too unconscionable to even make it an option. But even setting aside that, it's like, if we're going to focus our energy on trying to like build opportunities for us, like this, this isn't it, you know, this is just more more bubbles, more instability, more like having our, our livelihoods in the hands of a bunch of rich people who don't really care about us, who just will only ever see us as commodities. And like, I don't, I don't want to waste energy building that. I don't want to waste energy finding like what the best version of that is. Like no version of that is ideal. You know, (laughs) that's, that's what we've already had for so long. So, so I, I get it, but it's, I'm, I don't like it.
1: <laughs> I don't want to be too bleak about it or 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 put too fine a point on it, but I mean isn't isn't putting your fortune in the hands of rich people who don't really care about you just um how you survive in a capitalist society? Isn't there just there's there's like some form of that and and basically it's at the end of the day you have to figure out which lily pad you're going to jump to.
0: Yeah, but that's why I mean like this is still a new thing, which is why it's like we're already we're already working in this crappy existing thing. We're already working in capitalism. And, you know, me me personally, I'm I want to build communism. I don't want to build capitalism, too. So if we're like choosing what we're going to devote our energies to. Yeah, I don't want to waste time on capitalism, too. I don't want to find <laughs> fine tune what that will look like. You know, like people are the rich people are already doing that for us. We don't have to, like, take part in that, you know. And uh, so that's that's where I'm at with it. It'd be nice
1: to scam a rich person, though, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice though to feel like you're 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 at least for like a brief shining moment getting something over on someone?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, they, they, we always get like these little brief moments like that, but I try to put them in perspective. You know, like watching the game stuff, uh, GameStop stuff happen. Like I was, I was a little more, um, you know, like I didn't think of that as like some revolutionary moment, but obviously it was thrilling to see like a few people get ripped off who deserve to get ripped off. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still able to like take joy and uh, seeing that as, as fleeting joy whenever that happens. So.
1: That is a pretty good recent microcosm of probably how NFT is going to play out. Few people got it over, but man, they there's a dead man break to all They're dead man switch to all of this. There's so many fail safes in place should something go up the tracks that like just at the end of the day no one who isn't supposed to make out for something is, is ultimately going to make out from it.
0: Yeah, like I, I haven't really seen the, you know, I, I know it's happening, but like already most of the people benefiting the most from the NFT stuff are artists who already are very established and like have high profile careers and sales or people who already have a lot of money and are just, yeah, looking at it as a as a new place to speculate or a new place to park cash. Like the fact that we're already at a point where it's like, grimes and whatever kings of leon or something are on board it's kind of like this is already uncool this is art like whatever the party was the party's over now you know like grimes isn't yeah
1: it's it's cool for people who think elon musk is cool it's like yeah people who like were excited about gamestop because memes
0: yeah, like, once the Kings of Leon show up at your party, you want to leave the party, right? Like, s- <laughs> this seems, like, obvious to me, but...
1: It's, it's funny that it happens. It's it, it, it just happens at such an accelerated pace pace now, because, like, as far as I know, they, they were the first band to do an NFT. It was just, like, immediately immediately the least cool band in the world, short of, like, you two doing an NFT.
0: Yeah. I like how quickly it went from, you know, someone who only, like, has, follows whatever has happened. I have no interest in in crypto aside from like uh, sometimes criticizing it. So as someone who didn't follow it closely, it was interesting how quickly it went from being like confusing to kind of like intriguing to horrifying to just being like hopelessly uncool. (laughs) And that like, I feel like that happened in the course of like a month. So
1: is part of following this stuff, getting ultimately getting material for your work? I mean, are you when you're looking at something like NFTs, are you looking at it through the lens of potentially having it be an element of a future book?
0: Sometimes I feel like I, I, that stuff just happens naturally. And actually lately, you know, I feel it. though things are developing at, at such a pace that it, it's kind of hard to, I feel like any satire I write now is already going to be hopelessly dated in like six months, you know, <laughs> and like a, any, any kind of goof I do on, on technology, really quickly is gets made obsolete by like something that is way more horrifying or way more absurd than anything I could have possibly like conceived of in like my little science fiction <laughs> satire scenario. So, so sometimes I'm almost like actively trying to avoid writing about things directly because like just the, the all the cliches of like it, it being very difficult to top reality right now. Um, yeah. Some of it, you know, for NFT specifically, like it, it's just, it's a thing that, the entire, I, I tried my best to like not pay attention to it and just think of it as something that will like, something that I found distasteful and kind of frightening, uh, the ecological use kind of frightening, but would like come and go really quickly. But it, it was just, a it has been a big conversation in the art world. So it, it was a little unavoidable.
1: For me, it's one of the very few instances where my day job writing about technology and, you know, the interest that I have in comics and the stuff that I do around comics were actually like intersecting you know it's interesting to see obviously there are other implications but it's interesting to see like Matt Fury pop up in one of these stories you know Mm -hmm. because it's like I don't know I guess I guess there's a notion that if you're able to sort of like tokenize something that you can own it in a different way and that maybe it wouldn't be like wouldn't have spun out, but I mean, it it is unavoidable. This is the first time I, I remember seeing all of the cartoonists that I follow on Twitter like talking about something tech related.
0: Yeah, it's um, yeah, and I guess yeah. Fury would it was Matt Fury like the, the whatever the Pepe cards and stuff was like the first time I had heard of it <laughs> personally. And yeah, it's it's interesting to see, and and also someone who's like interested in both in like figuring out sustainable ways artists can make a living. And interested in like organizing artists and, and uh, all of our collective, you know, political education, seeing these conversations play out has, has been you know, very compelling. And I think it's like a, a an important thing that we, we all really consider and talk out the, the ethical implications of.
1: Is part of writing sci- sci- sci-fi for you Is part of it, a- attempting to kind of get out in front of that curve to some degree that all this stuff isn't going to be completely dated by the time the book
0: comes out? I don't know. I'd like, I've been thinking about this, like working, um, through 2020 and at 2021 is like really quickly feeling like anything that I had written prior to 2020 feeling really dated and knowing that anything I was working on in the moment, um, is going to feel really dated and probably like really cringy and embarrassing. And, um, I'm still not sure how much I want to like, just lean into it or not. You know, we've already seen like waves of, of pandemic art. Some is like really bad and corny. And some of it is like really great. But I assume in every case, like, it will not age well. I don't know if that's a huge problem. You know, like, I don't maybe like, I'm trying to adjust to the idea of like, not caring about how stuff ages. (laughs) And uh, my, 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 like, I do a daily comic right now where I'm like, it it feels so in the moment, especially because I'm yeah explicitly writing about a utopia um, while living through like dystopian times. It's I I feel like that's me leaning into it the most because no version of that won't look um, dated in a few years.
1: I think a lot of it has to do with specificity. I'm I'm actually struggling to think of good art that's come out of the pandemic that's like specifically references the pandemic. I mean in comics the one thing that like jumps out is, uh, I think Emily Flake was doing some really interesting stuff, uh, her like Mm. long form New Yorker and cartoons, but it was more about, it was about social distancing and isolation. And those are like, I mean, in a sense, like even prior to the pandemic, aren't those just the logical conclusion of the direction that we've already kind of been moving in with technology?
0: Yeah. And I think it's kind of telling that like, I feel like the big pandemic novel for everyone was Severance, which I love, but obviously it was written before, <laughs> you know, she didn't know coronavirus was going to happen, but it's like the most, that was like on everyone's reading list and everyone's book club. And it, it really did capture the feeling of 2020 extremely well, like uh, more, more than I think anything made that year.
1: Do you think there's, there's a way to sort of tackle the abstract emotional implications of something like this that isn't just like, here's my pandemic book?
0: I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really, I'm not, I think we're going to see like a range of stuff and it's also going to like change the way like the the narrative consensus of... Of what coronavirus is, and and I, I don't, I, I can't tell. Like I, I, there's all the obvious things where we're going to be subjected to a lot of like really bad novels about like couples breaking up in coronavirus and, and things like that. And then I'm sure like some very excellent, and then also some very like horrible things written about the 2020 uprising. You know, um, seeing people try to cash in on that in in really cynical ways, you can already see. Yeah, like lately I've been I've been watching art from like the the Bush era. And and some of it was unintentional. It kind of came out of like for some reason deciding I wanted to watch all of the Saw movies in like a <laughs> two week span, um, which I, I got no joy out of. Like I don't enjoy the Saw movies at all, but they feel so much like like this is the Bush era <laughs> of things. But um, but then watching like other movies made at that time that different that capture like different aspects of of what. Like living through the you know quote unquote war on terror was like um, has been interesting because they all do feel really dated and, and some of them are excellent some of them aren't uh, like I, today I like watched what's it called day night day night by Julia Lochtev. I may I maybe got the the name wrong but um like it, it's a it's about a a, a suicide bomber who uh, like has two days um, on this very like specific mission but like just the things that are like really reacting to the moment and um finding some of them really powerful still despite the fact that they're like are reacting to a very specific place in time and i actually don't know if someone watching that movie um who like was born after september 11th or or like was not kind of kind of cognizant during (laughs) that that time period would appreciate what it's doing um and I don't think that's a fault of the movies that it is like that specific.
1: It's interesting that we've like so quickly moved on to how the pandemic will probably in some be bad for art because we just moved on from how bad the Trump years will be for art because I I feel the same way. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I, I do think that that this idea, I know it was coined by the right wing, but like, I do think that. The idea of Trump derangement syndrome is actually very real, from the standpoint that I think that, like, I mean, obviously you're in Canada, so you're slightly removed from it, but you know, it's still North America, and you're you're still next door, and all these things still have massive implications on on the country up there. But I do think that like something like that just completely breaks our collective brain, and I I, and everything just becomes so directly when you're dealing when you feel like you're dealing with uh, trauma everything just is such a direct reference to that trauma. And I think ultimately a lot of the art just ends up coming out the other end, just being kind of cliche.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I remember in the moment, um, after Trump was elected already being annoyed at everyone predicting the slew of great art that was going to be produced
1: all the great comedy that we were supposed to get.
0: Yeah. And like, uh, it was, a, it was a thing of both like well I don't care <laughs> I don't <laughs> that's not a great trade-off and then um it didn't happen anyway <laughs> so uh, yeah that did like you know there there was like some good art that came out of the past four or five years but it, it didn't that that was gonna you know and, and some good political art but like that's just it was a silly a silly idea
1: yeah I think on average some art is going to come out over <laughs> over a four year period of time but I don't think any of it isn't it had I don't think anything that we've seen, I mean, I I certainly can't think of anything really being great art that is a direct reference to that moment in time. Although, like, now that I think about it, I don't know having Bush as president. I don't know that, like, there are too many instances of really great art that you can point to that was a direct reference to that exact thing.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and I think in both, during both presidencies, it's another case, too, where, like... Well, and during the Obama—like, during any presidency, the, the loudest stuff is going to be the, <laughs> the the worst. Like, I don't think we live in an era where, like, the most subversive stuff is going to float to the top anymore. But, yeah, I like—you uh, know, watching, like, Bush-era art, I, I saw— Harold and Kumar go to Guantanamo Bay. which was uh, I hadn't seen before. Not not like a particularly great, hard-hitting satire. Um, oh, no, but great art. I think we could agree it's great art. <laughs> yeah, but it was like an interesting like this is Bush era satire, like preserved in amber for us, and and finding it actually like a little toothier than most of the big pieces of Trump era satire, which. It was a little depressing to think about that like this, this was still (laughs) felt like it had a little more bite to it. than. I know people
1: like the new Borat movie, but I just, I think like if you compare the two Borat movies, you can see how much Trump broke us because I think the new one is just a lot. I don't think it, I don't think it has as, as you say, I don't think it has as hard of a bite. I think it is just a little dumber and a little, little goofier and it's not, I mean, the satire just isn't. It's just not as good as it was the first time around. And maybe that, maybe part of it is, um, maybe part of it's just like you know, he's probably past that that moment in time. But I also just think that it, it's just had a really profound impact on our ability to to create good satire.
0: It is, it is reassuring that still, like you know, because we're, yeah, we're talking about the, the most visible stuff and the loudest stuff, but it's still always reassuring to me that like people are still making really radical work and angry work and subversive work. Um, and that like there, you know, hopefully those become more ways to like foster that sort of thing. Like I just watched um, empty metal, which was like an amazing movie. And I, it's as radical as any sort of like piece of third cinema film I've ever seen, it's, it's about um, a noise band that get recruited to, to assassinate killer cops. And it's like a really weird punk movie. It's kind of in the tradition of, of Born in Flames and it's in dialogue with like um, indigenous sovereignty movements. And like, it's, it's like really weird and radical and like not all of it works, but I kind of like that too because it's so messy and watching stuff like that is like still really inspiring and it feels so vital. And it's like a nice reminder that like, oh yeah, but the good stuff is being made. Like it's just not, especially the way like, you know, talking about film, like the way film distribution is, it's just not, being seen as much, but it's it's there for sure.
1: You're a political person from the standpoint of, you know, that you are somebody who consciously thinks about politics and engages with politics and talks about politics, but do you feel that your work is inherently political?
0: The line I usually use is that I think all art is inherently political, but I don't think all art is politically useful. I would imagine that most people reading my comics would be able to suss out my politics pretty, pretty quickly, but I... Do not believe that my comics have much political use. But I do think art can be politically useful. And I do movement work that I think of as like a little separate. Um, like I do agitprop that I think of as like a separate thing for my comics and have separate goals and purposes for my comics. But um, And hopefully that is a, a little more useful. But I, I think of my comics as, yeah... Political, they're certainly in dialogue with political movements, but you know they're not converting anyone. I'm realistic about that, and they're probably not even educating anyone. So <laughs> they're just—I'm they're, making them for other reasons.
1: You touch on this a little bit. What, what does it mean to be politically useful? And do you think that they're? I mean, can you point to a comic or even like a relatively recent comic that you feel like is politically useful in that way?
0: Uh, I think a lot of Sophie Yano's work falls into into that category. But um, in particular, she did one about climate grief called uh, What is a Glacier? That I think is excellent. It's like very succinct. It's a really thoughtful and nuanced piece of writing and like has a lot of emotion to it. Like very, uh, a very like sophisticated take on a very specific type of grief, but um, is also pretty useful as something that could be a piece of political education or, or something that could mobilize someone reading it. Um, and I think that is like an excellent comic example of that. And there, there are other artists who work like Ron Wimberly is someone who I think, uh, you know, does such like a wide range of work, but uh, Ben Passmore as well, uh, I think would be good examples of like artists who are, who are making work that like succeeds on an artistic level, but could be mobilizing in other ways.
1: Probably on a whole easier Maybe not easier, but but more accessible in short form work, it sounds like, you know, in terms of like actually getting something in front of somebody and educating them and maybe even, you know, changing the worldview is probably easier to do with a one-off comic than it is with a graphic novel where, you know, they kind of already have to know about this world and really commit themselves to sitting down and consuming that one piece. I mean, I assume that like, you know, for better or for worse, probably most or a lot of the people who would encounter your work are probably already kind of maybe possibly aligned with you to some degree.
0: Oh yeah. Like I assume most of my audience are like already like communists and perverts like me so i I do i assume i'm like preaching to the choir which is yeah again why like when i do stuff that is specifically like agitprop i am aware i'm speaking to a different audience uh, and and i'm happy with I, i sometimes feel like there's too much pressure like when when people talk about like whether or not artists how artists should engage with politics like they tend to assume that like They can only engage with it with their work. And like suddenly they have to like make protest art or something. And like, that's cool. Like, I think they should do that if they feel compelled to. And and movements need artwork, like for sure. But that doesn't have to be the only way they they enter the world, you know, because you're it's not just what you can do as an artist. It's like what you can do as a worker, what you can do as like a tenant or neighbor or member of a community or or whatever. And uh, I sometimes feel like in art, people get too focused on like what they can do through their art. When that's just like one, that's just one thing, and will rarely be the most important thing.
1: It isn't. It isn't. I mean, obviously, it's not like it's not, as you say, it's not direct action. But for a lot of people, especially if you're a prominent artist, it is. It is a very. It's the most forward-facing thing that you put out into the world. Being compelled, though, is an interesting word. Do you feel that compulsion in your own work to be political, and and do you feel like you've moved? more in one of the directions as your career has progressed
0: i don't and part of that is because like i I work in such like a you know I, i think i have like a healthy audience and a very supportive audience but i i work in such a niche thing that i don't really feel much pressure to write any which way like i feel like stuff can just come pretty naturally and i write about the stuff that's on my mind and uh Frequently, that will be things related to politics. And yeah, like I said, I think anyone would read my work and be able to like very quickly suss out a lot of my core beliefs. But um, I don't feel much pressure to write any which way, I find.
1: Obviously, for a lot of people, things have been bad for a long time. And I think a lot of people feel that things have been markedly worse in recent years. It, it really accelerated now over the past year. I certainly feel like I've become more political and that my politics have shifted over the past four years and particularly yeah. in the in the last year. When people feel desperate and uncomfortable, those things really start to, to surface in ways that they hadn't before.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people are, are forced to myself included, like re examine aspects of their worldview because the world is changing pretty rapidly beneath them. Like it'd be hard to it'd be hard to not take stock. And it's been it's been interesting to see so many people take stock right now. And and encouraging, you know, it's like it makes me feel optimistic that, that that that's happening.
1: Generally, when when you look at the the political events of the you know particularly of the past year, where do they leave you? Are are you encouraged? Are you more hopeless than before?
0: I think any I think any socialist has to have like some amount of like suspending their disbelief because so much of it is like believing that left to our own devices we will actually like but bu- like build the equitable better world that but like i don't have proof of that you know so like there has to be that it's that homer
1: simpson quote of like in, in theory communism works in theory
0: yeah like we just we just have to like we don't have the proof yet we just have the hope you know um and i think there, there's some amount of that and then um but yeah i think of like when i think of 2020 i think of like some of the most intense feelings of despair I've ever had, but then also some of the most intense feelings of optimism I've ever had. And I'm sure it'll take me a while to really track. To reconcile. Yeah. Cause like I, some of the defining memories I have of 2020 were like the, the uprising, which like saw mass mobilization of people in a way that was like really inspiring and will have like long lasting implications and like, um uh, and, and, and on, You know, in Canada's side of things, like I don't know how much coverage there was of um, the pipeline blockades um, or uh, the the railway blockades uh, against the pipeline. And like things like that, 1492 land back was also a thing that happened in, in this country. And um so, yeah, the the most optimistic I've ever felt and the most despair I've ever felt. And I, I think that's a lot of people where like the, the joy I felt at watching like a police precinct burn with the grief that like I think everyone is still processing of of watching so many of your comrades get brutalized and, and seeing all the death counts and, and things like that. And I'm sure it will be a long time before we can really take stock of, of it um, if we ever could, you know, so.
1: Have you found that all that's transpired over the past year has had an impact on your ability to do work?
0: yeah I've had a hard time I think like most artists I've had a hard time focusing <laughs> it's uh I, and I think it would be it's it'd be wild if anyone could part of part of why um I picked uh, the the daily comic I'm working on as a project is because it it does take place on the moon amongst birds and it feels like it, it's easier to focus on that than to write like a human being living on planet Earth right now because like I don't I don't know what I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> I don't even know what like that looks like in my own life anymore. so it's it's easier to write birds right now.
1: The work that's in the new book uh, there these are stories that you have been working on over the years. but do you find that it's easier for you to work short term these days?
0: Uh, in general, I, I am always been more comfortable writing short stories. Um I you know I've done yeah, I've done graphic novel like things a, a few times now, but I still kind of think of myself as a short story specialist. And when I work on longer narratives, the way I tackle it is usually in small pieces, like a daily strip or a weekly strip. And then some of my other books, even though they come out like in one seamless thing, they were things that I was uh, working on as like serials on Patreon or or breaking down into chapters because I I still tend to like focus on the small bits that it's just easier for me to manage.
1: Is animation just kind of in your past at this point or do you feel like it's something you might go back to? Uh,
0: Every now and then I'll I'll pick up a freelance job in animation. The the new Adventure Time specials I've done a small amount of work for, like some concept art. I think it's kind of past. I don't know how easily I'd be able to get back onto the animation schedule. When I was doing it, I was able to like work a full time job and then devote about the same amount of hours to comics. But I don't think I can just like, I can't just like power through all nighters like that anymore, you know, because I was, I was doing through that. So that's like through my, like, I, I got some all nighters in me still, but like, I'd preferred not to, if I can. <laughs> so uh...
1: you get older and you just, you, you, you can't really, you can't function the way you used to. Not that you're old, but like, you know, you're. Your priorities change, but also you kind of change physiologically too.
0: Yeah, and, and the other thing too is like Adventure Time. Like I really enjoyed working on, but it's not like I just loved animation design so much that I'd I'd work on any show. And like I, I tried out for some other shows. A lot of them rejected me, you know. So like uh, I it might not even be up to me. Like I maybe I was like a right place, right time for Adventure Time. But there's a good chance I just like don't really mesh that well with the industry and its schedules or or other shows and its demands. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that, that comics affords you, which like practically no other creative medium does is that you really barring, barring some degree of outside influence, really get to create your vision from top to bottom.
0: Yeah. And um, I've been pretty lucky in that both uh, Koyama Press and drawn and quarterly have, Always been extremely hands off. Where sometimes I haven't even told them what a book was about before I, I sent it to them, and uh, they've they've just always been very supportive and and hopefully pleasantly surprised by whatever shows up in their inbox.
1: So Peggy and Chris and and Annie have never been like what what the fuck is this?
0: No, and like sometimes I've I've pitched them like I think about some of the the work I've I've done for them and like like they really took big chances on me, especially Anne starting out where she hadn't worked that much in comics before. And when I when I sent her Lose, it was like in a medium, like the floppy pamphlet serialized medium that like had already proven itself to be not profitable at all <laughs> to publish. And uh, I wasn't a known quantity. You know, I'd like done zines that no one had read before. And she like took a huge chance on me. And then like d when they printed Ant Colony, like that's a really expensive, annoying format is like a full color kind of like wide book that doesn't go on shelves all that nicely but and yeah in, in every case they've just been like all right you know sure like whatever you want they'll sometimes tell me to to make the type on the cover a little more legible but that's about it